You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, this is the projectionist, Asmicha. Uh, once again, we had a conversation last week that started with um, the film charade and the anomaly of that film uh, falling into the public domain, which led us, uh, Yitzhak and I, uh, to have a whole discussion about films in the public domain and copyrights. And it, it was it ended up really going in an interesting direction. And you'll see that uh, we not only deal with charade, but we also deal with um, not only the history of copyrights and uh, one of the most beloved films of all time, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. So I decided that what we're going to do here is split this into two programs. So first you're going to hear, uh, if, if you're listening, this episode is going to be primarily about charade and how um, the, and what copyrights were meant to do and uh, some interesting facts about that, which I hope you will appreciate. And then we're going to have part two where uh, we go, we take a deep dive into how the copyright strictures affected uh, the classic It's a Wonderful Life. So that will be uh, part two. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this part, which I think can really be appreciated just on its own. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has smicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolokowski and sort of on, you know, Yitzhak sort of taking up where we, we left off in our you know, rambling discussion last time about you know, various things. We were talking a little bit about, um, I was talking about Cary Grant. Uh, I gave the ultimate pontification monologue about, you talked about Cary Grant, did you talk about charade? And I specifically left out charade First of all, because I think Charade is sort of uh, an example of, you know, a film that was made in 1963. Uh, it was, I think, probably Carrie's last, you know, great movie. Although he 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 did make Father Goose after that. Um, but I, I think that, um, I talked about uh, Walk, Don't Run. But I think Charade really uh, is sort of like the last classical Cary Grant role that he that he played in um it's 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 a film that you can take a look at the at the trailer for it that it mixes romance comedy and suspense all together i'm not sure if any film has ever been as successful because it really is and it's a a comedy it's 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 somewhat even off-putting in the beginning because you know you're expecting uh, you know some some real suspense and murders, and it there are there are there are lines that really hit home and, and are funny. But as the film develops, that disconcerting attitude wanes. It isn't like a romp, like some of the you know Zucker Abraham stuff, Abraham stuff, where it's just like a a, a complete satire uh, or the scary movies. Uh, franchise it 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 is able to somehow be comedic and unbelievably comedic sometimes but you you get caught into the suspense as well um now the romance it really depends uh i mentioned last week uh that you know carrie is almost impossible to to be romantic with because you can't believe anyone can can actually live up to carrie 
But here, I, I think the, the role that Audrey Hepburn is given to play is, is, is great. Um, the, the screenwriter I'm going to talk about in a couple of minutes who wrote the screenplay uh, picked, uh, had uh, Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn in mind. That was uh, Peter Stone, who was really one of the most successful uh, screenwriters and playwrights uh, writing the book for a number of plays, uh, really in Hollywood. And he is a great story himself, the screenwriter, Jewish fellow, um, uh, who was uh, raised, had spent his youth in Los Angeles. Um, Strumwasser was his father's name, Strumwasser, uh, changed the stone, and then spent a lot of his life in Paris. And the, and the film is basically set primarily in Paris. Um, and it is a, um, a scene that it is a film that makes great use of Paris. And obviously Stone knew Paris very well. Um, the, the film is a espionage thriller because, you know, there's a woman who is, uh, who, who is going to, who is, whose life is being threatened. And Cary Grant, again, sort of playing with the same uh, persona that Hitchcock helped develop. Are you sure what's going on with him? Is he is he your helper? Is he not? It seems like he's really in league with these people who are trying to kill her. Now, they're trying to kill her because there's, uh, at that time, a tremendous amount of money, $250,000, that her dead husband has left, they think, with her. The husband has been part of a, a group of OSS agents uh, who, during World War II, were meant to give over some gold or whatever it was, monies to the French underground. Instead, they concocted a story that the Germans intercepted it. Meanwhile, they buried all this money and uh, this fellow, Charlie, who was Audrey Hepburn's husband, is actually absconded with the money. And the three other uh, fellows that uh, were in on this plot are out to, they have someone of them has killed Charlie. They feel she has the money and they're going to find it uh, no matter what. Cary Grant steps in, and he is somehow uh, her protector, but perhaps he's in cahoots with them. This is what the film keeps you guessing. Uh, Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? But the whole time, of course, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, he's romancing her, and they're joking around, and the repartee between them is sparkling, and it's incredible. And I, I will say that both of these characters, although Audrey Hepburn's career in Hollywood was not as long, she is uh, an, an incredible presence. I have to tell you, too, when I was growing up, I, I knew Audrey Hepburn was. My mother um, uh, you know, was, 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 was in love with the My Fair Lady, which, of course, is a film she made in 1964. She didn't sing in it, but she was uh, the actress who played Eliza Doolittle. And uh, uh, if, since 1952, I think, when she came out with Roman Holiday, she was, in a way, considered something super special. Uh, in Hollywood. She wasn't a, a, a sex goddess. She wasn't your Jane Mansfield, Marilyn Monroe, Jane Russell type. She was elfin. She was small, but she was considered aristocratic, beautiful, um, and she played with, uh, with, with, with sheer intelligence uh, that, that radiated it from her. I would say Charade is a film that Carrie, you know, is sort of, you know, he even indicates in the film that perhaps he's too old for this. Uh, when the romance begins to spark between the two, he tries to even fend it off, unlike in the film that I mentioned last week, 
people will talk in other films where, you know, it didn't seem uh, unusual for Carrie to be involved in women 20, 30 years younger than him. Here he's sort of like, uh, there, there's dialogue. I think Carrie insisted go into the screenplay where he, where he is uh, uh, demurring of getting involved because of the age difference between them. Still, um, the film um, has, um, like I said, at its heart, I think it's Audrey Hepburn. She's almost in every scene. And it's really on her back that the film rests. Um, Carrie got first billing. That's, of course, what Carrie would have wanted. But Audrey, it's really an Audrey Hepburn film. And um, they tried remaking it um, in 2002 called um, The Truth About Charlie. Uh, it was a huge failure. And almost everyone felt, why did they have to, if you're going to remake this film, try to at least match in some way the panache, the flair, the sparkling aspect of the original, and, and they weren't able to do that. Um, the film also has a great supporting cast. Um, one of my favorite actors, Walter Matthau, we've talked about him in the, in, in, in the films he did a couple of years later, he won the Oscar for The Fortune Cookie. Um, he's somewhat restrained here, but uh, he uh, he radiates, um, in a certain sense, you know, a little bit of a uh, that, that eccentric aspect that Matthau always had. But at the same time, intelligence and understanding. You know, a great Jewish actor, Walter Matthau, was part of he been an actor on the Yiddish theater. Um, the film, you know, it's been called the the best Hitchcock film in history. Didn't direct as a Hitchcock aficionado, it is not a Hitchcock film. Um, Hitchcock uh, would not have had such open laughs. Hitchcock had certain scenes which were comic and certain characters that he was having fun with, sort of like poking fun at the human condition. But Hitchcock did not want, would, would not have had a, a film like this that, you know, the jokes, you know, happen a lot. I don't know if Hitchcock screenwriters ever would be able to concoct something like this. There are scenes that are similar to a type of uh, Hitchcock suspense, but not done with the same masterly compactness and perfection that Hitchcock would do or show offiness, if you would like. The director was Stanley Donan. Stanley Donan, you know Yitzchuk is the is the director of Singing in the Rain, right? Stanley right. Donan and and was an interesting director because a Jewish fellow as well. Um he teamed up with Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly of course was uh, an incredible dancer. Incredible because he was different than the stair. He was uh, it was much more into athletic type of ballet, and unlike a stair who, you know, knew about choreography and worked with Hermes Pan and other choreographers to get his moves exactly right, um, a stair didn't really want to be behind the camera. He wanted to tell the director what to do. Kelly was uh, very frachapped by. Uh, becoming a director and he worked together with Stanley Donan and they both shared on uh, Singing in the Rain they both shared uh, director credits so he and, and, and Donan made a few films together and there was always this question could Donan do stuff on his own without Gene Kelly could he make music without Gene Kelly but Donan uh, ended up you know, splitting with Kelly and uh, this film is sort of like Donan taking his stab at a a suspense film and Hitchcock it isn't but it definitely he is able to uh, fill it with great imagery and um, some real um, some scenes which 
remain etched in, in your mind. It has a uh, it has a famous song that I think was a top forty single called Charade, which sort of plays in one scene where Audrey Hepburn and and, and Cary Grant are on a boat, and it sort of stays in your mind afterwards. I think uh, I think it was Johnny Mercer, I think, who sings it. Um, and you know you can you can hear that that tune in your head because they play it uh, periodically throughout throughout the film. Um, besides Mathau, the supporting cast, the killers, as it would be, who are after her, um, is George Kennedy, who in, in my mind is sort of like the '60s version of Walter of Ernest Borgnine. You know, Ernest Borgnine uh, starts off as a uh, you know sort of like a playing bit roles in the 1950s of course he had his big break in marty where he wins the academy award for but sort of this big burly guy who you know you know pushes back with 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 with, uh, with with brawn over brain uh and that's kennedy's role uh kennedy later of course earns an oscar for um cool hand luke um for best supporting actor which he plays uh sort of you know he's luke's uh, acolyte uh, paul newman's acolyte in the that chain gang um prison film uh it also has uh james coburn now james coburn had a very long career um and was a leading man in this film he plays a uh, a pretty bad texas accent as one of the uh, guys who are after her and um very menacing very threatening uh, i have to tell you one of the films that that made a tremendous impression on me when i was growing up was a you know he was he played of course the james bond spoof films uh in like flint our man flint where he played an american version sort of a james bond type um but he also was in a film that i think is one of the most brilliant films of the 60s it's called um uh, theodore flicker wrote the screenplay for it it's called the president's analyst and uh, because the president has been confiding with this fellow who's sort of like a becomes he sort of becomes a spy and has uh, him and Godfrey Cambridge and James Coburn and Godfrey Cambridge. So, you know, Coburn had a, a career from charade. His career really took off uh, and he became like a leading man and someone who could carry a film. But, you know, he's quite menacing and threatening here. Um, and, and he does some real acting. It also has a character actor that I know you're familiar with, Ned Glass. Now, Ned Glass, I, again, I didn't look him up by his real name. But uh, Ned Glass is a uh, uh, plays uh, has been playing Jew- played Jewish characters in films and on television. He must have done at least uh, if you look him up, I'm sure we can find probably hundreds of 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 appearances in various television programs in the 50s and 60s. Um, many people remember him as Doc in West Side Story. Uh, he was the he ran the I guess the candy shop uh, where, you know, where he sort of like tries to be the voice of reason uh, to get the jets and the sharks or, or Tony or whatever it is to, uh, to become a mensch, so to speak, with a little bit of Jewish, Jewish wisdom. But it was, it was nice, it was nice to see him as a threatening, uh, as a possible murderer. That's Ned uh, Glass as the, uh, uh, is there. And again, you know, it's very Yiddish, but at the same time, very determined. Um, I think he was a, uh, he also did a, uh, again, where I remember him is he was Dick Van Dyke's barber. Uh, right. When, uh, you know, the episode where Dick Van, where he thinks he's going bald. Because he's going bald. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he gives, <laughs> he gives him the salad dressing one where, right. uh, 
And of course, this leads to uh, to Rob Petrie having a dream where his, all his hair is gone and um, uh, it's been replaced by uh, pieces of, of looks like cabbage or, sa- or salad on his head, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that one. Yes, and, and I think the greatest part of this is when he, he in his dream, he goes back to uh, Ned Glass the barber, you know, and and of course the barber is, you know, yeah, he's also playing this ghoulish, evil barber at this point, and of course Richard DeCon shows up, um, you know, Mel Cooley, who was always being um, chided for being bald, ends up with somehow magically having Rob's hair. <laughs> right. Well, one of the one of the lines that Rob says to Valora is like, "How would you feel about being married to Mel Cooley?" That was the. <laughs> right, right. And Mel Cooley, he comes in at the end of the episode where having, you know, a beautiful set of hair, you know, Dick Van Dyke's hair. <laughs> Again, it was very stark. But Ned Glass there, uh, you know, we, he could play a ghoul when he wanted to. Um, the film, um, you, know, it, you know, I watched it recently again because uh, it's very easy to watch this film. Um, you don't really need much. It's in the, it's, it's, it's in, uh, the public domain. Uh, and and it's, 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 it's an incredible story how we got there because it seems like unlike other films that at least needed to wait you know, 28 years uh, for the first copyright to expire and to see if it was renewed, this film actually never, uh, somehow, it was never copyrighted. So well, that, that, that's, that's how I knew this film because I was always a interested in what, what movies were in the public domain because if I wanted to just copy them and try to sell them even though it wasn't very successful as, as a little kid but it was something i knew i could do there was no fbi warning about any of these movies that were in the public domain and they so in other were, words you could put them on a vhs you could put yeah, carry grant movies that i know of that were in the public domain one is really probably my favorite of his movies was the uh his girl friday how did that wind up in the public domain um I, you know that that's i think part of it is because rko went out of business but that really is neither here nor there because plenty of rko movies are not in the public domain especially king kong so that's that i'm not sure how how his girl friday wound up in the public domain another one was called an amazing the amazing adventure that was one that he made still in england and then this one charade which always puzzled me because you know the, the amazing adventure because it was made in England in the 1936, at that time, all almost all foreign films were pretty much considered to be public domain. Then the laws changed later with that. Uh, His Girl Friday, again, it's, it's 1940, so it's a little bit older, but still I'm not sure why, how exactly that wound up in the public domain. But this one didn't seem to fit because it was a relatively newer movie was from, from the early 60s was it 63 64 yes it came so. out in 63 i mean came out so, the film came out in december 63 just weeks after uh, the kennedy assassination uh-huh. um and uh in fact there's interesting trivia about this that in the in, in the original film um she says i don't we're going to be assassinated and the when when columbia i think it was that was releasing it they were worried about the words assassinated because they just been hearing assassination so they actually redubbed it <laughs> so you wouldn't hear the word assassinated but it came out right after the kennedy assassination and you know, the film was very beloved 
It was very, it wasn't like, you know, some throwaway film. Everybody loved it. They, as I said, well, let's make another charade. And it really hasn't been done again. So you're right. It's strange that, that that's, I mean, it's almost like one of the biggest mistakes you could ever think of. It's one thing to say, okay, yeah, this thing isn't worth anything. You know, they never even put the word, because I think before the 1989 a copyright law that anything you produce is automatically copyrighted. Like, like we say in, in halacha, is sofer. It's clear that anybody who would create something would want it to be protected. In, in 1963, unless you actually, when you issued it, that you put a C or the word copyright or even C O P Y R, none of that happened. And because of right. it, and because of it, anybody could get a hold of it. Again, you you need it. It wasn't so simple to get the original, um, the original uh, actual film, but it, it, you know, if 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 a if a theater paid and got it, somebody could copy that film, right? That film could be then you know, and 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 it wouldn't cost anything. Exactly, and that was and that was what it came down to. They put the words, they put the year. And they, I think their intention was that the year should mean the year of the copyright, but because they left that word out, that was it. And the same thing happened uh, even, it was a couple of years later, the Night of the Living Dead. Because they didn't put the word copyright, that was another one that wound up in the public domain that was not the typical public domain type of movie. It was, a, even though that was an independent film, it wasn't a big studio film like this, but still it was something that, you know, it was valuable. It was something that people, uh, you know, wanted to see preserved. And yet you wound up because they forgot to put in that word. It was anybody could use it. And there were when I was, you know, my memories of all these things was that you'd go to the grocery store and you could pick up a VHS tape. Like I said, it could be for two dollars of all of these different types of movies. And these were but, and at that time, a standard like film, even on VHS, you're talking about thirty dollars, right? Again, obviously the prices, right. you know, as as VHS you know became uh, outmoded, and even DVDs today, DVDs. You talked the other day about Storm Warning being five dollars, but when DVDs first started, when they first started marketing these uh, these films, a film that was still under copyright, you'd be talking about paying thirty dollars or something like that. Right. Right. So. Getting something for a bargain basement price was was an indicative of the fact that it didn't cost much to produce, and also those transfers uh, and, and many of the tra- the transfers for charade uh, were worse and worse. So, right, that was that was such a beautiful film, just to be really ruined by such a bad print. I mean, it's the same thing, and again, this is something that's more contemporary. Usually, you know, by that time they this this film was made you know all all movies even the oldest silent movies looked really good when they came out it's just that nitrate you know quality and things fell apart you know i mean we we think of some of the great silent films that have been in the public domain for a long time and the horrible prints of something like metropolis which is a beautiful you know high budget you know film and you you see it's just these garbage prints where or the the gold rush, you know, a lot of Charlie Chaplin, just these garbage prints of really great films. And the, again, you expect that from the silent era, from the 30s, from the 40s, maybe even the 50s. But something like this, or even something like Night of Living Dead, which was still made in black and white, it was it was an independent film. It wasn't 
you know, big studio film, but this the big budget studio film, and just because they forgot to put that word copyright, that was it fell immediately into the public domain, and it and it's just uh, it's an oddity with that as far yeah, as yeah, I, I would definitely say so. I know that I know public domain means a lot to you, Scott, because in a way that allows you to uh, and many other film buffs to be able to uh, zero in on on stuff and whether they're getting the best version of it or not. Uh, they don't have to pay the the, the you know the prices um, of being able to stream something and enjoy something. Yeah, um, I mean, but, but I think so, it really so, someone someone made a joke about uh, how many how many copies of the Devil Bat they have on 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 DVD and VHS because because this is the public domain, you know, like we've talked about the double-edged sword here that being in the public domain means that the quality is 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 not going to be that great but we should also i think talk about um that there is you know especially in halacha there's something called the schosayotzer uh it's 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 an area that uh, was clearly you know influenced by you know, copyright laws that were prevalent in in in, in Europe as, as as the industrial age sort of began with the, you know as the printing press and other things developed, um, the haskamas on svarim generally were actually an excuse not because you know you needed a haskama you know the the, the original svarim the written pixavia didn't have any haskamas haskamas were there also to indicate that the azhara of not stealing it um, and so we know from our perspective, whether it's something that we, that through osmosis we got from the general culture, but it has been ratified in, in Halacha, the schus that uh, that people have to something that they create, and that's obviously something that's, that's recognized in the universal way. So when you have something like, let's say, Peter Stone, who I'm not sure, you know, the, who put so much effort into this incredible screenplay uh, and to get it just right, um, and Donan and all these others um, you would expect, hey, look, I worked on it. It's my fruit of my labor. Um, that any now that it's just out there, that anybody can just take it and run with it uh, and use it without there being some sort of recompensa- compensation back to the creator. In a way, it, it should bother us, despite you know, like, on one hand, oh, we're happy it's in the public domain. A similar thing was going on with Napster, as you remember. Uh, when the you know Napster was this uh, this downloading app that you could download all this music that was out there, and eventually, of course, uh, the courts ruled uh, you know that that it was Ill- it was illegal, it was violating various various copyright acts, and now you you know you have to sign up and you have to you have to pay a fee. Um, so the, let's not forget that I, I don't know if it should be ad infinitum and it should be necessarily you know whoever they sold the rights to or some big uh, corporation, some big consortium, but especially if we're talking about the family, uh, the creator, and it's and it's and his family. You know, I, I guess as 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 rabbinical people, as people who understand what it means, we should probably you know be a little bit uneasy if something just you know, okay now it's out there you can just take it, right? It's well, it, uh, you know, one thing that you mentioned is that the Haskomas were part of the, you know, Hasogas Gul, you know, uh, you know, we you saw that in in all the Swarim. That was that was a very, but right. I think I think part of the issue with the with the Haskoma also historically was that part of the copyright law 
when the printing press came out was also that there was a license of what could be printed. They didn't want anything inappropriate to be printed. And there was a certain trust that the, because the printing presses were mostly owned by Christians, uh, you know, there was a certain trust that, you know, this is going to be a reputable, you know, if you have a reputable rabbi writing a Haskoma, the the Christian authorities are not going, they'll they'll rely on that. You know, there was, there was a history in general of, there was a type of, a, in, with, with all of the oppression that the Jewish community suffered under, there was a certain level of respect that the Christian authorities had for the Jewish authorities, that they gave them a certain level of autonomy, but also I, I read something in, in, in Menhage Vermiza that if someone was a Parnes in the community, they had to receive, uh, they had to be sworn in, the Jewish community had to vouch for them, and then they had to be sworn in by the, the bishop or the cardinal, and there was a whole ceremony involved with that, uh, being part of the Jewish community, you know, uh, council more or less, and I, I think it was the same type of idea that before something was going to be printed, although later there were Jewish printers in Slavita and other places, but uh, the idea was that this is your license for something. So the licensure of for something to be printed was combined with the copyright with with the with the Isra Hasogos rule. And then later on uh, in America, also when copyright was brought to America, it was considered something to be within the purview of a limited federal government, just like currency would be something that when the constitution took over after in place of the Articles of Confederation where the, the 13 states each had their own currency <coughs> under the constitution, there'd be a, a unified currency in order to other, otherwise there, there would be somewhat anarchy, there'd be no union. So too, uh, copyright protections, both for intellectual property and uh, and to uh, to patent inventions and things, which is also a form of intellectual property, um, both it was a licensure, but also it was, you were registering a copyright and you had to pay for that copyright. I understand, but, but you, that, but, but, but the concept- the Constitution does uh, again. You know, it's ensconced in the Constitution the rights to uh, to protect these the, the fruits of your labor uh, up right. to a certain point, and 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 therefore I think when when we you know we we rejoice Yitzchak, and again you're sort of evading the the point. We rejoice over things being in the public domain. On the other hand, there is some there is an element of damage, and of course the damage is that we want people to contribute, and if people Again, it's based on an economic theory that if people can reap the fruits of their labor and their children and grandchildren, that that gives them a reason to be inventive and creative. And, and people, that, and that, if and people that, just let me finish the point, if people yeah. discover that what they're trying to invent and create gets absconded and being taken by others, they're not even going to try to do it. So, it's, it's well, in a way, in a way, keeping this item in some ways out of the public domain helps ensure that there's going to be other charades made and other films. And, as opposed to okay, you know, every everything I, I try something out there, it gets you know these bizarros come and grab it. Why should I do anything? So it, it really does, in some way, lead to a more uh, the, again. There's got to be a yin and a yang. There's got to be a way for 
the items that you produce, it, it can't, it, the copyrights can't be so restrictive that they end up not being able to be part of the culture. But at least there's enough protection that, that, that there's a reason why your selfishness kicks in that you would want to produce for the greater benefit. Well, that again, in in post-colonial America, in in early America under the Constitution, there was because of the the stringency, which wasn't that strict, of the copyright laws, it led to there being a a, a lack of culture in America. Everything in American culture in in the 1790s and early 1800s pretty much was pirated from Europe because there was no, there, you know, especially if you having things coming from England where they spoke the same language, so you didn't have to translate this uh, material. It was British literature that was, that was popular in America because that, that was not protected by the copyright. Right. They didn't have to respect, they didn't have to respect anything that was uh, an import. So therefore books, you know, as, you know, the books of Dickens but, and, but, and but, other but authors no, were able to be, were able to be copied here and sold and no one had to pay any rights for them. But what you're saying is it led... nobody wanted to produce anything in America. Okay. Because right. They went, sold. Yeah. Now again, part it of it was, yeah, you know, it's true. I mean, I did see one time the Norton uh, book of, of 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 colonial literature, and there is there was some stuff being produced, but you have to realize that it was a new country. There was a lot of growing pains that were going on. But you're right, the 19th century. Uh, it's only the 19th century that Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville, Mark Twain, eventually, and others come and uh, create what's called the American style of writing, the American voice. Um, and, it, and, it, and it probably did arise together as copyright laws started to become uh, stronger as well. And maybe well, um, it was they were it, at first they 19th century when Thomas Edison and others, uh, you know, start creating and, and developing, you know, moving pictures and films. Edison, we know, was insane about his demands like edison would sue continuously you know for everything that he did that the, it even though even though a lot of his stuff was stolen from everybody else that's right but edison was one of the premier litigators in terms of stopping things he wanted to control and own you know you know thomas edison is like the genius of menwell park but he was one of the most uh, ruthless in terms of keeping stuff for himself and not letting this uh not letting this new um medium grow and develop but but we know that that it, it was in a way the wild west originally. I mean the 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 Hollywood and you know there wasn't a real you know um, it wasn't yet developed exactly how copyrights of films and how this would work because this was something new. It's sort of like when we talk about streaming and Napster, <clears throat> this was something they knew about books. They knew about things that were written. You had to it was it was in the Library of Congress and it was registered there. And there was, you know, as you talked about patents, but something that was a film, a film that was based on a play or based on a on a book. So you know the you know the the copyright laws sort of had to keep up with the way the way technology was moving and that that brings up another subject that's probably thanks for joining us for another episode from the yeshiva of newark at idt podcast be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode 